First Grade Failure, Barnes and Noble Janitor, Couch Surfing with Kids. Today on The Pursuit, Eugene Cho. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Eugene Cho. Eugene is the president and CEO of Bread for the World, a Christian advocacy organization urging decision makers to help end hunger all across the world. He's also the founder and president of One Day's Wages, a grassroots movement of people, stories, and actions to help alleviate extreme global poverty. He's also the founder and former senior pastor of Quest Church, an urban, multicultural, multi-generational church right in Seattle, Washington. Now, we recorded this last fall before the election, before the Capitol insurrection, before the inauguration. So we don't get into all that, but we do get into a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, as impressive as Eugene's bio is, if you're anything like me, you will be struck by Eugene's story going from a shy immigrant kid to a world changing activist. Eugene, one of the most fascinating things that I've ever heard about you, I was sitting in your church actually in Seattle, and I heard you say that you spent a summer reading through the encyclopedia and that you got up to like the letter G or something? Man, that is the quintessential tiger mom story. <laughs> and it's actually even worse, man. It's worse oh, no. than how you just said it. They didn't make me read it. They made me copy it by hand. No. And I got to, I think it was L, <gasps> but let me also go on the record and say when my parents were not watching, I ripped out pages from the World Book encyclopedia in order to be able to get through my assignment. Like they wouldn't know? Well, no, they wouldn't know because you know, we were all busy running our classic immigrant Korean grocery store in San Francisco. My, my brothers also had it rough too. My oldest brother had to copy the dictionary. My second brother had to copy the thesaurus and then I had it the worst. I had to go through the entire encyclopedia. Wow. Obviously did not get through it, but I want you to know that even to this day, there there are information of the most random things that still... Give us one. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you want all the information, but I do think <laughs> if there is a trivia pursuit competition, you want me on your team. Trivia night on the letters A through L. Well, particularly aardvark. Like, I know a lot <laughs> about aardvark. Uh, the, the classification is the Orisoteropus. Um, so, <laughs> all right, don't worry. We can edit this out. We can edit. This. <laughs> Eugene, you have, you've started organizations and churches and cafes and you will get into all of that. But what did you want to do when you were growing up? Uh, my parents told me I should have been a doctor and that wasn't really where my heart was at. For a season, I wanted to be an astronomer. Oh. Something about space really excited me. And then I went through a phase where I wanted to be the first uh, NBA Asian basketball player. Um, I don't know. Wait, whoa. I don't know why you were laughing at that, man. That You're rude, man. Um, you shouldn't be laughing at my dreams. But for a while, uh, sports was my small R religion. It was mm. very, very important to me. So you grew up in the Bay Area. Were you born here in America? No, I was born in Korea, immigrated when I was six years old. You know, it was hard. I mean... It was challenging. Mm. You know, some crazy facets of my story is that I, my parents didn't tell me that we were immigrating. 
being the youngest of three sons, mm. in their infinite knowledge, they felt it wouldn't be good for me to know. And so I remember going to the airport at Kimpo International Airport in Seoul, Korea, wondering why all my relatives were there, wondering why they were all crying. <gasps> and, and then at that moment, I realized, oh my goodness, I'm actually getting on an airplane, first time ever, and got on the airplane, landed in San Francisco. To my recollection, it was the first time ever in my six years of life I had seen anyone that did not look Asian. Yeah. So it was it was shocking. It was very disruptive in many ways. A week after I landed, I'm basically on a public bus called the Muni in San Francisco, riding to my elementary school called Sherman Elementary. Not by yourself. By myself. Uh, it it was as a six-year-old. As a six-year-old, that's man. You 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 must have been a softie, but uh, <laughs> it was uphill both ways. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, so it, it was it was challenging, and uh, I flunked first grade. Really? Um, yes. I flunked first grade, and in part because I struggled with lots of social aspects. You know, um, the the most difficult thing, the most terrifying thing for me as a six-year-old, fresh off the plane immigrant was needing to raise my hand and ask questions or to speak. Hmm. And so I still remember my parents going to the PTA teacher conference and hearing that I was a hardworking student, industrious, did well in math, that I had some social issues. Yeah. Part of the reason why I had social issues was because once or twice a week, I needed to go to the restroom and I just could not conjure up the courage to raise my hand. It's kind of a brutal story. There's a reason why I think in God's mercy and kindness, I was um, able to marry a therapist uh, so that I could <laughs> have free therapy. But um, yeah, I, I peed in my pants a couple of times. Oh my gosh. And, uh, you know, first graders can be brutal. Yeah. And gosh, that must have been so hard for you as a six-year-old, you know, learning the language and just having arrived in this country. Goodness. Well, and so by the time I got to middle school, um, I think I really began to have an unhealthy fear of people, of, of public speaking, which was the reason why in middle school I was voted the shyest kid in middle school, developed a stuttering problem, which I still wrestle with occasionally. Really? Yeah, it was it was hard. And in some ways, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I think it's the reason why two things. One, I love sports because it was kind of my refuge. Mm. And then secondly, when I became a bit more interested in the possibility of this person of Jesus Christ. It was his his affinity, his inclination, his commitment to those who were marginalized or forgotten that really fascinated me about the gospel and why it still shapes the way that I see Christian leadership and how I want to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Wow. That is remarkable. Yeah, shyest kid. I mean, um, which is really odd because I'm the shyest kid and yet they knew me enough to vote me the shyest kid in middle school. <laughs> but it was hard, you know. Uh, it was hard in many ways. And it's not to embellish it. I think all of us have gone through our unique stories of trials, setbacks, pushbacks. People might see this as a politicized statement, but my story as an immigrant, there isn't a week or, that goes by mm. multiple times throughout the week where I'm not reminded of my immigration story. Mm. Um, and I'm grateful for it now as I look back. I think it has um, engendered a deeper sense of empathy, of compassion, my desire to be an advocate for others as well. I would encourage people to be reminded of those stories 
of trials and struggles to kind of be reminded where we came from because it does shape who we want to be in the future. As you got older, how did you end up navigating the society? I mean, imagine, I mean, I look at you now, right? You're, you're a public speaker, but you're talking about somebody who's peeing their pants in first grade, stuttering in middle school. How did you survive adolescence? Ah, man, God's grace one. Mm. And I say that not lightly, even though I wasn't a believer back then. But when I look back, part of my theological education and ordination process, I had to go see a psychiatrist slash therapist as Mm -hmm. part of that process. I think other denominations go through this as well. And um, I remember seeing this particular psychologist and it was an expensive appointment. And uh, I was instructed by this particular doctor to draw my story. I thought that was an interesting exercise. Uh I wasn't particularly happy to be at this session, but she instructed me to draw my life and brought out a gallon worth of crayons and markers, a big butcher roll of paper and said, Eugene, I'm going to give you about a half hour just to draw. And she left. I imagined her standing behind some mystery see-through window laughing at my life. (laughs) But she leaves and I realized I needed to draw because I got to pass this exercise. I started drawing and I'm not really much of a, a drawer or an artist, but I began to kind of map out my life. Um, October 20th, 1970, drew this big circle and I said, Eugene Cho was born and began to draw the ups and downs of my life. And what was amazing is that half hour into this drawing exercise, I found myself weeping profusely because I really hadn't taken the time until that moment to really look back at the totality of my life till then and just see all the mountaintops and the valleys and everything in between. And I looked back and I said, man, I've gone through a lot Mm. and also saw evidence of God's grace throughout my life. So that would be one. But I think it was also moments of courage. You know, you conjure up as much courage as you can in each season of your life to help you through the next chapter. So in high school, to give an example, I realized I needed to overcome some of my fears. And it's probably the moment of my life that I'm most proud of, if I can say that without sounding arrogant. Yeah. Um, It was in high school when I told myself, I've got to do something about my fear of people, fear of speaking. And the thing that scared me the most was acting, was being part of a theater play. Mm. And so I chose to audition for a play in my sophomore year in high school. It was Midsummer Night's Dream. And I was cast. Um, It wasn't a great role per se. It was a very small role. And uh, I played the wall. But I just want people to know that I was the best wall. Wait, wait, literally you were a wall? Yes. In, in, in Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a character named Snout and he okay. is basically a wall. <laughs> and so that's, that was my part. And um, I'm really proud of it because I was able to identify specifically a fear in my life. Yeah. I wanted to tackle it. Yeah. And as dramatic as it sounds, I look back at that moment and say, man, something happened. Something pivoted in my life. Yeah, that's amazing. You mentioned this fear of people. How did that fear of people manifest itself as you were in middle school, high school? Well, I think it was just 
It was a fear of making friends, fear of speaking, fear of being seen, fear of having eyes upon me. It was just kind of a constant cycle of being seen, needing to speak, feeling the pressure, wrestling with my body, meaning like my body was always reacting to those moments of anxiety. Yeah. Whether you're shaking, your face turns red, you're you're stuttering. Yeah, it was all, all of the above. And you know, little by little, I'm grateful for the fact that I made friends. I'm grateful for those who um, stood up for me, advocated for me. I, I was that kid in middle school who ate lunch alone mm. for the first year in middle school. Uh, it may have been the fact that I was afraid of people. It may also have been the fact that my mom packed rice and kimchi. <laughs> and there was a reason why people avoided that. It's amazing. Now you, you take Korean food to the cafeteria, you're like the most popular kid. Right. Everyone knows Korean food. But I still remember there was a, a, a young girl in middle school. She was the most popular girl in middle school. Her name was Ingrid. I remember her because, again, she was one of those figures in my life, unknowingly, that made a significant impact. Mm. Um, I was eating lunch alone in the middle school cafeteria at Aptis Middle School, and someone taps me on the shoulder. I ignore it because sometimes it's a bully. Sometimes I just don't want to deal with it. This person taps on my shoulder again. I turn around, and lo and behold, it was the most popular kid in our middle school, Ingrid, who said the most glorious words to me. The first thing that she said was, Eugene. And that shocked me that she knew my name. Wow. And then she said, can I eat lunch with you? Wow. Again, I wasn't a believer back then, but I found out later she was a believer. Huh. There's just something about, about being seen, you know, being seen, being named, someone saying, I choose to eat with you. I choose to be in solidarity with you. That's powerful. So you had mentioned like your isolation and your fears and things like that. How much did you pass that through the filter of race? How much was the fact that you were a Korean American play into your sense of inferiority and fear? The answer is yes. In terms of to what extent, I don't quite know, but I definitely know it had an impact. Yeah. Right. Uh, Because you were always seen as an other, even growing up in San Francisco, this melting pot diverse is that I was just seen as an other and not just seen as an other, but I spoke as a foreigner as well, whether it's because of my limited English, being a student in the ESL, English as second language, yeah. having flunked first grade, having peed, you know, and all of these things I think contributed yeah. to those aspects. What was weird was having been an immigrant who chose or who came here not by choice, my early years as an immigrant, as a Korean American, was basically marked by a chapter that I would call wanting to go back. I just thought if I went back to Korea, it would solve everything. It would remedy some of my pain, my loneliness, my isolation. And I just wanted to go back didn't understand. So it began to fester a deep bitterness against my parents. I needed someone to blame. Yeah. Again, now you know why I married a therapist. There's a <laughs> lot of discussions I have with her. I have to treat my wife, Minhee nice because if she ever bills me, it could be really, really, it, it could be the end of me basically. But, but here's the story. In middle school, I actually went back to Korea for a summer program. And when I went back, I was so looking forward to going back home. So looking forward to being back in Korea with my people. And when I went there, 
it was so shocking and not anything yeah. that I imagined or expected. Yeah. In part because when I arrived, my relatives and even strangers knew that I wasn't one of them. Huh. It was my accent that I didn't think I had. Right. But they knew that I wasn't one of them. And on a couple of occasions, I remember hearing strangers, including this one taxi driver who told me, you don't belong here. Go back home. Oh. And that led to a deeper spiraling about identity. Like, who am I? Where do I belong? Oh my gosh. But that's not, it's not foreign, right? I mean, I think a lot of immigrants wrestle with that bicultural identity of, am I Korean? Am I American? Sure. And what does it mean? Where do I belong? Yeah. So yeah, it, it contributed to some of that uh, confusion, some anger, some bitterness. Was college for you a time where you were able to solidify your identity uh, as an Asian American, as even just as an American? You know, that's a, uh, I, gosh, that's a good question. I think that's always been an ongoing process, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, I mean, even now, and I'm jumping the gun here, yeah. you know, but even now in the year 2020, with the rise of anti-Asian sentiment, both verbally and physically, that mm. uh, many Asians have experienced, yeah. uh, there are moments where I'm asking myself again, hey, do I really belong here? Am I welcomed here? Now, that's not my reality all the time, but I think there are moments when you have some of those questions. But yes, I think college was a time where I became a bit more comfortable in my own skin, in my own identity. I think I began to embrace the fact that particularly as I became a Christian at the age of 18, I saw my bicultural identity as a Korean American, not as a curse, but actually as a gift. Hmm. And that was really the first time that I began to see it as a privilege and a gift, that I had the possibility, the opportunity to be able to synthesize the good things about these respective cultures, to be able to name things about these respective cultures that may have been harmful or toxic and trying to form a new identity, if you will. You said that you became a Christian at 18. How did you end up becoming a Christian? Well, you know, my great-grandfather was one of the first people in his village outside of a larger city called Pyongyang to say yes to Jesus. Wow. So there's some history of Christianity in our family. So it goes way beyond my life. And I, I believe, I do believe in generational blessing, mm. generational impact, if you will. So I'm really, so I want to just name the fact that my great grandfather was one of the first people to say yes to Jesus comes home, shares this good news, the gospel of Jesus with my great-grandmother. She's captivated. She says yes. The whole household comes to faith. Yeah. And so faith has been a reality in our family. Now, having said that, I think for me, it was never, ever personal. Mm -hmm. You know, I was forced to go to church. And then when you're an immigrant, churches serve many functions and not just a place of worship. Sure. It's a place of gathering. It's a place of social services. It's a sure. place of, of what we call kukbap on Sundays, you know, that, <laughs> that meal that we eat together for those who are listening that aren't Korean. Right. And you know, that, that's very sacred. It's very sure. special to gather on Sundays with the Korean community to eat that kukbap. But in high school, you know, because I went through some, some, some seasons of anger, of pain, I struggled with you know, different things, whether it's substance abuse, whether it's mm. anger towards my parents. And uh, a, a lot happened, you know, yeah. uh, a lot happened that I probably at, 
even even still, I don't always feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, that might be for the NC seventeen version for your Patreon supporters <laughs> that you may want to share with. Uh, so I will say, right before college, I was working at my mother's uh, little deli shop okay. in Santa Clara, California, and she had a little small deli shop inside an IBM building. And at this deli shop, I didn't want to work there, but that's what we had to do to survive. And she asked yeah. me to help her out. Left the home at 4.30 in the morning to get there at 5.36 to get ready for breakfast, serve lunch, and then come back home for dinner. But uh, I met a gentleman there, and his name was Raimondo Gonzalez. And Raimondo Gonzalez was the um, the custodian at that building mm. in the IBM complex. Mm. And um, he was fairly young, I would say mid-20s, recently married, had a one-year-old child. You know, I sometimes wonder if I labored through four years of Spanish con Senora Nicora to be able to hear the gospel from Raimondo. He's the one who told you the gospel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In Spanish? In Spanish. <laughs> oh my gosh. Again, Senora Nicora, una profesora increíble. Yo estudié español por cuatro años durante la secundaria con Senora Nicora. <laughs> Yeah, she was an incredible professor. And um, wow. But yeah, we became good friends. And uh, almost on, on the daily, he would come to the co- our deli shop, sit in the corner, and we became friends. And, and nearly every day, he would just share something about Jesus with me. Wow. Share a Bible verse with me. And eventually began to ask me, Eugenio, which is my name in Spanish, Eugenio. Tú necesitas Jesús Cristo en tu corazón. Wow. You know, you need Jesus Christ in your heart. And yeah. uh, I always said no when he made the invitation. Always said no. But it was the end of that summer in the privacy in the corner of my room where I lifted up an imperfect prayer saying, God, I don't quite know who you are, but I want to know who you are. I want to follow you. I want to follow Jesus. And thus began my ongoing, imperfect, broken, stumbling relationship with Jesus. So yeah, it, I, I look back and it didn't change everything, especially some of the anger and bitterness that I was going through even at that season of my life. Yeah. But it began the trajectory of changing everything. So as you are graduating college and thinking about career, what are your thoughts at that point? Doctor, yeah. I mean, right. my mom was obsessed with General Hospital. <laughs> You know, I have a feeling if you have young listeners, they're like, what is General Hospital? (laughs) What's an encyclopedia? (laughs) Yeah, what's an encyclopedia? So, yeah, I mean, they just really wanted me to be a doctor. And I will will just say that when I called my parents, I graduated college in three years. And when I called them to let them know that I wasn't going to pursue med school, they were crushed, Mm. crushed. And in fact, decided to cut off relationships with me. Oh, really? When I told them that I was going to go to seminary to pursue ministry, they were devastated and severed that relationship. So there was some strain there. Oh my gosh. But again, I look back, I understand, you know, I think in their desire to love, uh, they had a particular course of life that they thought would be best for me. And then growing up in Korea to be a pastor really meant you lived a life of poverty right? and that you were constantly uh, leeching off other people. It's kind of blunt, but that's kind of the stereotypes that, right. that pastors had growing up in the era of the Korean War. So yeah, they were very disappointed, but uh, thankfully they came around. 
but they still cling on to this whole doctor thing because even right now, I'm turning 50 next week. <laughs> when my parents introduced me to their friends, this is how they introduced me. They go, this is our son, Eugene. He's a pastor, but he's really like a doctor to people's souls. <laughs> they, they still cling on to that doctor obsession. <laughs> That's amazing. So I got to ask, what, what are your older brothers? Uh, so, you know, my oldest brother was ordained to become an engineer. Ordained by your parents, you mean? Uh, right, by my parents uh, to become uh, an engineer. And I have to give him lots of props because he came here in eighth grade, managed to get, to get into UC Berkeley, then went to master's for engineering, then got his PhD in engineering, wow. then he got his postdoc, then he went back to get his MBA. Um, I basically hate his guts. So I'm going to go on the record and say that there is some Korean drama rivalry. And my, my middle brother, he was supposed to become a business person slash lawyer. And uh, he ended up going to UCLA, went into business, worked on Wall Street for a little bit. And so, yeah, all of us had our particular, you know, uh, line. As I shared earlier, I'm really grateful that my parents, because you and I both know, I think particularly from our Confucianistic mindset, culturally speaking, mm. honoring our parents is important. And in yeah. some ways, we struggle with that being important and the borderline of that becoming an obsession, unhealthy right. you know, thing. And I definitely wrestle with that. And it's important to me. I know that ultimately, I know who I serve. I know who my Lord and Savior is. But it's always been important for me to honor my parents in, in an appropriate way. And I'm really grateful that uh, they've become uh, my most avid prayer, supporter, and encourager. So you graduate college with your heart set on ministry. Uh, so where do you go from there? Drove cross country from San Francisco to Princeton, New Jersey to matriculate at Princeton Theological Seminary. When people ask me why, it's because I had no idea what seminary was. And my pastor at that time in Sacramento, where I was serving as a youth director, basically said in a very deep Korean first generation accent voice, you go to Princeton. <laughs> and uh, I did. And um, it was both good and challenging in many ways. As you're going to seminary at Princeton, your heart for ministry is forming, your perspective, your worldview, all of these are solidifying as you're maturing and preparing for ministry. What was that journey like? Did you have experiences that sort of accelerated that process? A couple things stand out for me in my seminary experience. Number one, I think it was a, just a, a shock and a challenge to some of my theological views and convictions. You know, I wasn't, I haven't been a Christian for a very long time, wanted to go into ministry, went to Princeton, mm. which depending on your theological perspective can either be very progressive or conservative. Mm -hmm. For me, it was, I think, a, a shock to my system in many ways, mm. coming from a more conservative uh, background that went to a, a Korean parachurch ministry at UC Davis. Yeah. So that was a shock. But the reason why I highlighted as something important was it taught me that as a Christian, I'm not entitled to a place at the table. I need to be able to intellectually engage people and give a reason for why I believe in what I believe. Mm. And I think it shaped me tremendously for ministry, particularly in Seattle and the Northwest context in our post-Christian world that we live in today. The other thing that was really significant was just serving at a Korean immigrant church as a youth pastor, uh, as a chandosa, which is translation as an unordained pastor. Uh -huh. um, but I drove every weekend about 
two and a half hours every weekend to serve at an immigrant church in Flushing, New York. Wow, that's really far, man. Man, it was a brutal, brutal drive. In fact, it was so long I had to spend the night there on Saturday. My first weekend at that church, they had told me, hey, we have housing for you. Don't worry about it. And man, I still remember when they showed me where I was staying, it was at the floor of the church offices with four other chandosas. And yeah, I mean, and the thing is this, like now I look back and I go, it was all part of that formation. It was all part of good things, challenging things, beautiful things, saw God at work. I was able to exercise gifts and ministry. And so that was very formative to be able to spend my weekends with these Korean American immigrant kids, many of them latchkey kids. It was the only experience in ministry where nearly every single kid came at least half hour to an hour before youth group started because they so desperately loved being at church huh. because it was that or being home alone as latchkey kids. Yeah. And then, and then the other part about uh, seminary years was I took some time off after two years, wanted to recapture, re reorient my understanding of my culture, my language. Mm. And so I ended up going back to Korea to do an internship. What was initially meant to be three months, it grew to become a, a full-time pastorate, even though I wasn't completing, even though I hadn't finished seminary. Uh -huh. um, so I spent about a year and a half wow. as a pastor in Korea. And that was incredibly formative as well. So you had mentioned growing up, you had this fear of speaking and fear of people. Did you still struggle with that as you're working as a pastor in these churches? Yes and no. And I still struggle with it just for the record. Huh. Um, like this is really pleasant because I don't see you. I'm looking <laughs> at a computer right now. I'm not intimidated by you, man. So, <laughs> so I'm still very much of an introvert. Huh. My wife calls me an extreme introvert. And I think she's right. When we have friends over, she knows every half hour I have to do a really subtle, quiet retreat away from conversations, go to my room and just re-energize for a few minutes. And she knows that. Wow. And when I preach, man, I get scared every single time I preach. I'm shaking, my hands are wet. Oh, wow. And in some ways, I think it's good. It's a good reminder for me as I steward God's word that I don't ever want to rely on skills or yeah. techniques that I've learned or my own strength. But as a pastor, as you know, Mm -hmm. Both as a pastor or as a influential leader, you, you learn to become social. And so I've learned to be social with good sociable skills, yeah. but I certainly love uh, being alone. Uh, I, I enjoy that in addition to the opportunities to engage people. And I, and I, even though it scares me, I do love people and I love being in a space privilege of teaching, of doing life with people. But I think it also reminds me how much I enjoy um, quiet walks alone. Yeah, I take a, a, a silence retreat every year where I go away for about a week or two weeks, sometimes as long as a month mm. where I'm just all alone. Uh, and it helps kind of recharge, recharge me a little bit. So when your time in Korea comes to an end, you come back and do you finish school? Yeah, I came back uh, to Princeton to finish out my last year, but something else happened in Korea. And I don't know if you're purposely glossing over my Korean drama episode. <laughs> if you can cue the Korean music in the background right now, that sappy Korean song, uh, and slowly pan from my face to Minhee's face. 
yeah, I met my wife there. You know, uh, met her the last week I was in Korea, or I met her before, but I conjured up the courage. The last week I was in Korea, we had five <laughs> very intense dates. Um, true story, five very intense dates. Oh my gosh. And then we were in a long distance relationship for one year. Wow. And it was truly a long distance relationship. I was back in Princeton, New Jersey. She was in Korea and phone calls, Wow. phone calls were over a dollar a minute <sighs> during non-peak times. <laughs> and so when my church folks, when like Young couples at our church are complaining and telling me about their struggle with long distance relationship, having to FaceTime and this and that. Yeah. I have zero empathy for them. So you come back, you finish and you finish school or you get married or how does she end up here? You got to watch the Korean drama. It's on Netflix, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I finished school yeah. and go back to Korea. Uh-huh. And <laughs> Oh, you go back. Yeah. I, I went back. To, oh, I, I went back not to live there. But to marry my wife and to bring her back to the States. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had a beautiful ceremony where they put makeup on my face, gave me a straight perm. <laughs> and uh, to this day, this is not even a joke. Someone once actually came to our home, saw our wedding photo and asked Minhee, is this your first husband? <gasps> like, who would say stuff like that? Number one. Why would your photo be up? And then number two. It shows you how much makeup they put on my face. Oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, we got married in Korea and she immigrated as a 26-year-old. Um, and man, she can give you a podcast uh, on her own about her journey immigrating to a new country at the age yeah. of 26, smitten by love. Uh, and that was our, our story. Um, but you know, obviously there were, there were challenges that we also experienced as a new couple. Yeah. So where did you end up living? We spent about four or five months in New Jersey. Okay. Um, I, I needed to stay in New Jersey for about four or five months because I decided not to walk during college graduation and it crushed my parents. Uh, when I chose not to walk. And I think in my immaturity, I didn't realize that when I went to college, it wasn't just for me. Mm. It was for my parents as well. So it was very important for me to make sure that I was going to stay in Princeton for a little bit to walk and graduate in my Korean hanbok. Uh, I look great. Wait, and um, you wore a hanbok to your seminary graduation? Yeah, you didn't? So everybody is in their cap and gown Yeah, and you're you're wearing a hanbok? There were actually a couple of Korean Americans wearing hanboks. Oh my gosh, yeah. I had never seen that. Really? Huh, interesting. Yeah, and so after that, uh, it was during a time of discernment. Yeah. And as we discerned, um, I thought I was going to pursue ongoing studies to pursue a PhD in homiletics. Okay. Uh, but just wanted to do ministry yeah. and uh, began to pray about place and where that would take place and uh, eventually decided to come to Seattle. Hadn't been to the city, but wanted to come back to the West Coast. And something about Seattle kind of jibed and resonated with me. Mm. And that was, I believe, uh, 1997 Wow. Um, when we drove cross country back from Princeton to Seattle, Washington, um, to begin our new chapter there. You end up serving at a Korean church in Seattle? Yeah, we started an English ministry at a Korean American church in the suburbs. And, um, you know, a little known fact, that's where I met you. I think that's you were right. there for a summer or so, and uh, you were worshiping with us for a time. Right. Played bass at the uh, youth group retreat. That's right. It was, it was mean bass, man. <laughs> Tell me about your time there. You know, this is first adult ministry experience for you. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it was good. Even though I later on decided to move on to plant a multi-ethnic church, 
I love being Korean. I love being Korean American. I love all the imperfections, the good and the bad of the Korean American ethnic church. Yeah. And it was a privilege to be able to start this English ministry. It was a fast growing English ministry. We started it from the ground level, learned a lot. And it was an opportunity for me to continue to identify what my gifts and weaknesses, skills, passions, your theology, your ecclesiology, all of these things. You know, when you spend so many years just being consumed by books and theology and German dead theologians and the Schleiermachers and <laughs> the Bonhoeffers, those are all, it has its place, but it was also really liberating and life-giving to be able to be on the ground, to do life together with people, including with college students, young adults and families and such. Yeah. And I still look back, grateful for God's grace for allowing us to be there. So I have to ask, because your story up to this point has been very Korean-centric, has been very Korean-American-centric, right? You're you're ministering actually in Korea. You're serving at Korean churches here in Flushing and in Seattle. And, you know, I know the story and, and everybody knows the story of, of, of Quest Church being a multi-ethnic church, which we'll talk about that transition. But all along, was there brewing a sense of dissatisfaction with a monochromatic ethnic congregation? You know, I'm not sure if it was this satisfaction. I think what may have gotten lost in translation is that when you grow up in San Francisco, you you grow up in a very diverse city. Mm. So even though my home was Korean, I went to a Korean church, I love Korean food, I am a Korean drama star, <laughs> even despite all of those things, the reality is I lived in a very diverse context. Yeah. It was it was the it was the lens in which I saw the world. And so doing ministry in a homogenous Korean-American context, that really was the anomaly as an adult. Huh. And even when I pastored in Korea, this is crazy, but my vision or the vision that I think God planted in my heart to pastor a multi-ethnic church really began to germinate when I was in Korea. Because at this church called Onuri in Seoul, Korea, uh. on any given Sundays, on any given weekends, I think it had gotten to a point where there were like 14 or 15 different services led by indigenous leaders who were living in Korea during this rise of globalization. Huh. There was a, a, a French church, an English-speaking church, which is what I was doing. There was a Spanish-speaking church. There was an Indonesian-speaking church. There was a Chinese church, wow. a Japanese church. So that was also really influential to see this church and its passion for the nations, its passion for missions, passion for justice, but passion also for a diverse community. So it wasn't so much frustration as it was that it was time for me to pursue those convictions. Yeah. Now, I will say that even at this Korean American EM suburban church, we had tried to become a multi-ethnic congregation. Mm. So it wasn't because of a lack of a, a trying. We tried, but it also felt like pouring in new wine into old wineskin. Huh. You know, I think there's room and space for many different kinds of expressions of church. So I'm not going to come on this podcast and say the Korean speaking ethnic church is bad or the EM model is yeah. bad. We need many different models, but that are all healthy and thriving and flourishing. We came to a realization that that ministry probably needed to become an English ministry and thrive. And I wanted to leave the suburbs, be in the urban core, mm. engage a multi-ethnic context, 
pursue much more of a holistic, whole gospel theology. And that was what eventually led me to step down and head into the city to plant a new church. I imagine that there are a lot of pastors and leaders that are listening that uh, find themselves in a ethnically homogenous church experience and have desires to move to a multi-ethnic context. And I think, you know, so many Korean American pastors that I've met have gone through that, that thought process. You having done that, you having been in those two contexts specifically, what advice would you give them about how to sort of think through that transition? Yeah, a few thoughts come to mind. My initial thought would be, let's make sure that it is an anger or frustration that's the genesis of vision. Because sometimes that ends up becoming not just the genesis, but it ends up becoming the DNA of our leadership huh. and of our new ministry. So that would be one. The second thing that I would say is I get this question all the time. How did you do it? Because it's somewhat rare, particularly for Asian pastors or Asian leaders to lead multi-ethnic contexts that are influential. Yeah. And what I tell people is it's not so much about your theology, because theologically, I think people know that the kingdom of God is diverse. We know that. Right. But my response to people is don't focus so much upon techniques that you learn at conferences. Those have their place. But I want to know what does your Monday through Saturday look like in your life? Mm. That's really the key. So for me, having grown up in a very diverse, multi-ethnic context, friends, music, culture, language, all of those things, it really is the natural lens by which I see the world, not at the expense of abandoning my Korean identity. Yeah. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. So I think there are some leaders who don't necessarily live this out Monday through Saturday, and then they want to plant or be a part of a multi-ethnic church. Yeah. And then it becomes more about how do we try to put on window dressing as opposed to the very core and ethos of our home yeah. reflecting some of these diverse commitments. And if you think of the church as an extension of your own personal community, then it will be a natural progression of reaching your community as opposed to sort of missionary work into a multi-ethnic community. And it's hard work. Yeah. I mean, it all looks better on the website. When you have that photo <laughs> on church's website of people from different ethnicities, it yeah. always looks good. Yeah. You Photoshop it. Everyone's got great hair, great complexion. <laughs> you know, a lot of folks know about Quest Church. I love this church. It's like the fourth baby for my wife and I. Yeah. But man, being a part of a multi-ethnic church, particularly during the last few years, with all the uprising of racial mm. unrest in this country, it was very challenging. And the question kept coming up, are we more of a multi-ethnic church simply in our Sunday gatherings, or are we truly able to do life together? It's interesting that your answer to that question about what you would tell pastors that are thinking about making that transition, I don't know if you remember this. I asked you that 14 years ago, mm. and you said the same thing. Mm. I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> I do. Man. What I remember you saying was, look at your life. If this is not an authentic expression of who you are and how you relate to people, then doing it on Sunday is not going to be an authentic expression or it's going to be a lot more difficult. But if that's who you are and how you're living, then it could be much more natural to do it on a Sunday in a church experience. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that someone not move forward with this. Right. Really, 
our ecclesiology about what Sunday, about what church is. Yeah. And church is not an event. It's not a 90-minute service or a 60-minute service. It's just so much more. And I think it, it speaks to the, the holistic imagination of what it means to be a leader, to be a pastor, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So you make the transition to go and plant Quest Church. Uh, what year was that? It was the year 2000. We had our first information gathering in December of that year. And it was in 2001 where we officially launched the church. So we met in Seattle and you were at the Korean American church. And then this is before Facebook or text messages or (laughs) anything like that. When I moved out of Seattle, like we completely lost touch. We end up running into each other again in Atlanta and you were speaking at some conference and we were hanging out and I was like, oh, how is church? And you're like, well, I've actually left the church. I'm Mm. planning a multi-ethnic church in downtown Seattle. Mm. Uh, My wife is... I want to say eight months pregnant and I have no health insurance. Mm. Did I get that right? Yeah, it was a challenging time. It really was because we had wanted to plant this church. Things didn't quite turn out the way we imagined mm. in the time frame that we hoped for, that I had hoped for. You know, I left the church, yes, with a lot of faith, but I also planned my steps like we, like most of us do, you know? I think externally I was saying, hey, we're taking this big step of faith, but internally I had like organized and mapped out how this was going to happen. Right. And that's really when the challenges came about because the church didn't get off the ground and we couldn't get it off the ground for several months. And then I realized I didn't have a job, didn't have insurance. And then I realized we had bills to pay and a mortgage payment at that time. And uh, I was unemployed for a while. I realized that a master's of divinity degree was useless to most employers who had no idea who I was. And so eventually landed a job as a custodian, uh, as a janitor at a Barnes and Noble store off exit 181B in Linwood, Washington. Wow. While I was working there as the sole janitor, I do want to go on the record to say it was the cleanest Barnes and Noble in the nation. <laughs> and it took a lot of pride in my work, but I can laugh now, but yeah, it was a, it was a really challenging time, really challenging time. Did you think about Raimondo Gonzalez? I did. You know, I did. Maybe not not at that moment, yeah. but I did later. Yeah. You know, at that moment, I was, to be honest, pretty upset, yeah. pretty bitter, pretty angry. This wasn't quite what I signed up for. Sure. Uh, and it was it was probably the hardest job I've ever had. It was a 40,000 square foot warehouse. And uh, I was working alone at six in the morning Hmm. um, or about three hours before the store opened up. And yet it was probably one of the most significant moments of my life where I felt like God really met me in my anger, in my pain, my disillusionment. I mean, what do you do at six o'clock in the morning when you're cleaning a 40,000 square foot warehouse by yourself except have some honest conversations with God. Right. And again, I, I probably can't reveal some of those conversations. That's the NC-17 <laughs> specifically for your Patreon supporters. Um, but it was also really honest and really vulnerable. And I can say that God met me in my pain and my anger yeah. during that time. So part of when you get Quest off the ground, pretty soon afterwards, you end up opening Q Cafe. And I think a lot of people know about Quest Church. 
and I think fewer people know about Q Cafe. And can you tell us quickly just what the vision was behind this cafe? Well, Q Cafe was probably the best part of Quest Church hmm. for me. It was the funnest part. It was the most life-giving part of Quest Church. Less than a year into Quest, we decided to do a building project, which is not something I would recommend anyone to do. <laughs> but we were given an opportunity to help renovate a space that had been laying useless. It was a 4,500 square foot space, not huge, but we thought rather than building a church, what could we do to embody our commitment to be a good neighbor? And the thing is this, in a post-Christian society, no one is going to randomly walk into a church. Right. And I just really felt that the best way for us to learn to be a good neighbor is we have to create space to get to know our neighbors. And so the idea of starting a nonprofit coffee shop, music venue, art gallery space was the impetus, the vision behind doing this. And, and I'll just share this. In the first year of our church plan, you're obsessed with trying to reach out to your neighbors and your neighborhood sure. because your survival is at stake. So we're yeah. trying to reach out. We're getting to know our neighbors. And I will say that in the first week of Q Cafe being open, we met more neighbors in that first week than we had in the first 14, 15 months as a church plan. Wow. And the thing was, we didn't want to bait and switch people. We wanted to, <laughs> again, just let people know that we are here to be good neighbors. I think that in itself is very countercultural and scandalous. Yeah. It's about building relationships. And I know we say that a lot in any sort of leadership context, but I have learned again and again, you cannot love your neighbors if you don't know your neighbors. Right. Anything outside of that is theological gymnastics. Yeah. It's all hypothetical, nebulous theology. And the music venue was, we were only one of three all ages music venues in Seattle. Huh. Uh, and it gave us an opportunity to be a part of trying to make our neighborhood, to make our city a little more artistic, a little more beautiful, a little more melodic, a little more just. That was our hope for it. So during your time at Quest and running this cafe, you start an organization. Yeah. We started an organization called One Day's Wages. For the record, Rich is one of our advisory board members. I'm really grateful for him sharing his expertise with us and his passion for similar things. I mean, the reason why yeah. we started it Certainly, you know, our faith in Christ shapes and informs everything that we do. But I think it was as I was entering into my mid-30s, realizing as I became more aware of my parents' story about growing up in abject hunger and poverty mm. and them experiencing compassion and mercy at the hands of individuals or organizations, that I wanted to make sure that A, I was able to give back. As a pastor, I wanted to embody and model the very things that I was preaching to my congregation about generosity and things of that nature. Yeah. So we started this, this thing called One Day's Wages, where we try to inspire people around the world to give up one day's of their wages or whatever they can give. And uh, we're about 11 years into it. So one of the things is when you started this organization, you and Minhi, you guys ended up selling a bunch of things and you actually moved out of your house uh, to help kickstart this organization. Is that right? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, not what we imagined. You know, our pledge was to give up a year's wages, which was $68,000. That was my salary back then as a pastor. Mm. And he was uh, at home with our, with our children. And um, it was not an easy decision. It took us three years of saving, simplifying, selling off things that we didn't need, yeah. including my 1989 blue Mazda Miata that I call Blue Thunder. <laughs> and um, I still miss that car. 
But it was a bit more challenging because we weren't able to come up with the money in the time frame that we had hoped for. And so uh, there was a very difficult decision of needing to move out of our home and subletting it to, to people. Mm. And so for about three months, we were couch surfing with friends. With three kids. With the kids. Uh, it was an interesting time. They thought we were homeless and, and bankrupt. And uh, it was a challenging time. But I mean, you say that, right? Like your kids thought you were homeless and bankrupt. And I don't know whether you're joking. For kids, this is their life. And so they're like really going through their own experience through all of this, right? Yeah. This is why it's good that your wife is a therapist because you know, they get free therapy as well. <laughs> We didn't quite know how scared they were until they were teenagers and later shared with us wow. the, the emotions that they were feeling. Again, it wasn't part of the plan because I think if we knew yeah. how challenging it was going to be, like if I were to go back at my life, if we knew, if I knew that we wouldn't have health insurance and I'd be working at Barnes & Noble, I wouldn't have done it. If we knew that saying yes to one day's wages would mean that we would be moving out of our home and couch surfing, we wouldn't have done it. And in many ways, I think I'm really grateful that God doesn't reveal all the specific clarity about our future that we so often demand in our prayer. Mm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very challenging time. And yet, during that time, deeper empathy, deeper love and appreciation yeah. for my wife, for our children. You know, when you go through a season like that, you begin to realize what's really important to you. And for us, it was faith family and friends. Eugene, I got to ask, right? Because you you leave a, a church to go plant another church and then things don't go the way that you planned and you're working as a janitor. You plant the church, you start an organization and then things don't go as planned and you and your family, you know, end up having to, to sublet your home and couch surf for three months. Meanwhile, you're, you're lugging along these three children I, I guess for me, how do you get past that feeling of failing, push through and get to the other side? Great question. I don't know if I have an articulate answer. I think it's a mixture of acknowledging fear. Mm. It's a, a mixture of wrestling with fear, of asking for faith, of knowing that you're not in it alone. Mm. It's a journey. Yeah. One of the phrases that I despise that sometimes gets used in the church language is this notion of being fearless. Huh. I think that's so misleading. As humans, all of us are going to experience fear on some level. Yeah. And if I look back at my life, I can see very distinctly the evidence of fear. What I've learned over the years is that as humans, we're all going to have fear. We just have to make sure that fear never becomes a lifelong companion huh. that takes full-time residence in my heart. Yeah. We have to just say it's a visitor. And what faith is, is when our faith acknowledges and names our fear, and even with trembling and shaking says, I'm going to believe that God is greater. Yeah. And I'm not trying to get into a sermon here, right. even if it sounds like it, but that's really been, I think, a good way to encapsulate those moments of significant hurdles of fear in my life. During this time, I, I remember, you know, this is like during the years of blogging and you actually had a pretty, pretty popular blog out there. And I remember reading along through the journey that you were writing specifically, I think being so outspoken and I would say being outspoken as an Asian American, you were really putting yourself out there. And I think in a lot of ways you received a lot of, I mean, I'd say criticism, but 
really hate, mm. right? You've received a lot of hatred from people online. Is that fair? Mm. Very fair. Yeah. How did you, how did you manage that? You, you know, l- l- let me say this. Uh, it was difficult. And in many ways, I think I chose to do it because you and I both know that representation matters. Mm. And I felt that it was important for me not just to speak up for myself or to speak up for my children or my family, but there is an element of burden as leaders, and particularly as Asian American leaders, where there's so few voices being listened to or invited or heard to engage that. But it was one of those moments, again, where I began to realize, going back to identity, who am I? What am I about? Who do I serve? But I'm really grateful. You know, I have come across and have met so many Asian Americans. Because, you know, when you're writing, you have no idea beyond maybe some of the one-dimensional statistics that you see on your WordPress, you know, dashboard. Right. If it's even having an impact or how people are receiving it. Yeah. And over the years, and obviously blogging has really fallen off the charts, but over the years, I've met so many people, including Asian Americans, who've come out of their way to say, hey, you know, what you wrote X amount of years ago really had a significant impact on my life. You know, I don't write for the praise of people, but it has been tremendously encouraging to get a little glimpse of the impact that one's imperfect words or imperfect sermons or writing could have an impact on other people. How much do you think about that idea of representation? I mean, it's important. And I'm grateful that in the year 2020, while there's still much to go, that there are other Asian American leaders who love God, who love people, who are seeking uh, to exercise their gifts and talents and passions and convictions. Mm. Uh, Obviously, you're one of them. You and I have had numerous conversations about it. Again, not for the sake of trying to build a platform, but really trying to be faithful to the gifts, talents, and passions and convictions that God's given to us. And as you know, you are going to receive, yes, at times, encouragement and affirmation. And then there's going to be other times where particularly in a time of the internet and anonymity and trolling, where you can receive some vicious, vicious feedback. Over the years, you know, I've struggled with it. What does it mean to be a pastor of some influence or platform? Uh, We have had death threats. We've had rocks thrown into our church building. We've had strangers come to our home. You know, lots of lots of things. I've had to move my family out of Seattle for a season just because we were getting a variety of things. And there's that temptation that it makes you really bitter and cynical, or you want to, if someone throws you a punch, you want to throw a bigger punch. Right. And it's a, it's a constant reminder about, again, who I am, who I serve and what I'm about. Uh, the book that I wrote, you know, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, mm. I write about some of the pushback and, and criticisms I've received over the years and how tempting it is to simply return jerkiness with more excessive jerkiness. And I just have to remind myself that as a follower of Jesus, Jesus truly exemplifies a countercultural perspective of what it means to live out the kingdom of God. You know, I think a lot of people have sort of traveled similar journeys that you have, right? You know, working in churches and organizations and things like that and pursuing these sorts of things in their lives. Eugene, you know, so recently in the last couple of years, you actually made the decision to leave your church. 
you know, make this transition to uh, Bread for the World, I just am so curious as to your thought process of how you ended up deciding to leave and how you actually did end up leaving and left well. Well, blunt truth, there are moments I kick myself, truthfully, sometimes even nowadays, Mm. because we work so hard uh, to build up that church. And I know it's God's church, but along the way, as pastors and leaders, it's really tempting to have our identities embedded in the very things that we do. Uh, Minhee and I have always seen it as our fourth child. I know it's not the healthiest analogy, but that's how it felt. It was very personal for us. Lots of blood, sweat, and tears. It was people that we love tremendously. It was our dream church. It was the church that we wanted to be a part of to, to worship, not just to plant and lead. But a few things happened. I think it was kind of a midlife reflection. Mm. As I shared earlier, I'm turning 50 pretty soon. And I think it was this milestone of realizing that we're now very much in the second half of our life. And as I've been in the second half of my life, I wanted to just discern the prayer, God, what would you have us do? Would you want us to be at this church and continue to grow it? And it was, I'm using my air quotes right now for those who can imagine (laughs) this. I mean, it was a very successful church. Yeah. Largest Protestant building in Seattle, large staff, large budget. The greatest perk was it was right across Trader Joe's. And so imagine being (laughs) able to do church, go to Trader Joe's. My gym was right next door as well. I mean, it really was incredible. Yeah. Mile away, able to walk there. But I think we began to discern after paying off a major capital campaign. We bought this building formerly owned by Mars Hill Church in Seattle years ago. Mm. And so once we paid off the loan, because our dream has always been this, that if there was ever a time we felt God would call us to transition, our prayer was that it would be at a time of tremendous health and flourishing for this church. So once we paid off the capital campaign, two years passed, we began to just give ourselves permission, you know, to just come to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what would you have us do? And if it was to continue at this church, we would be so excited. But as we were turning, both of us, in the second half of our lives, the question I had was, I just wanted to make a significant impact. And what would that look like? And for us, uh, there's two ways that we felt like God was calling us to do that. One is just to preach the gospel anywhere and everywhere, mm. and then to be able to advocate for those who experience hunger and poverty and vulnerability. And I was able to do that through one day's wages, traveling a lot, encouraging missionaries and pastors. It's yeah. always a privilege to do that. But you and I know that direct relief, very important. The work that IJM does, really important. Mm. Recently, I just read a headline about five children in the Philippines were rescued. We praise God for that. But you and I also know that policies and legislation, whether in the U.S. or in the Philippines or in other nations, have tremendous impact in our fight. A lot of Christians don't really know that very intimately. And so I had this opportunity to continue to do one day's wages, to continue to travel here and there to speak, uh, but leading bread for the world. uh, I'm spending a lot of my days speaking with congressmen, congresswomen, senators, policymakers, again, trying to represent Christ and the kingdom uh, as it pertains to people that are experiencing hunger, uh, poverty, and vulnerability. So I know when I made the transition from uh, working as a pastor to a nonprofit, there was always sort of a question in my mind of, you know, I've always only done this one thing, uh, working in a church and sort of moving into a nonprofit, there was always, always sort of like this 
unfamiliar territory. Obviously, you had your one day's wages leadership, but as you sort of turn the page to your second career in a way, do you feel a sense of loss of leaving mm-hmm. the pastorate behind? Man, are you trying to make me cry right now? <laughs> what? I mean, what? What is going on here? Are you doing like side <laughs> classes in the evenings on like therapy sessions? Yeah, Minhee has actually outsourced this to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I wish I could be more articulate about you know just sharing my feelings. Um, but yes, there is a loss. Yeah. I, I miss it. But here's the thing. Somebody once said to me, and it's actually been said a few times in the past two years, like, hey, you're no longer a pastor. And I had to stop them because it really bothers me huh. when they say that. Yeah. I'm still a pastor. Yeah. That calling has never left me. God's calling to be a pastor hasn't left just because how it looks in my life has changed. So yes, I'm no longer a pastor of a local church, but I am still now trying to be faithful to the calling of the pastorate in a different context as I seek to live out that calling in the halls of power in DC and beyond. Increasingly, you are being asked to sort of speak on a national stage, right? And and what I mean by that is conferences, but then also at, you know, guest speaking at a bunch of churches. You recently did a stint at Willow Creek and I I guess for me, as an Asian American, I look at you and I see your face in a box on that ad for that conference, and there's a sense of pride, there's a sense of solidarity Mm. that I I feel Mm. uh, with you being up there. How much of a sense of that do you feel as you're up there speaking? You know, I'm going to take you back a few years. I'm speaking at one of these, you know, said conferences that you're alluding to. Mm. And it was a youth conference. And after I speak, a group of students come up, comments, feedback. And there was this one young Asian woman. My guess was, I think she said she was a sophomore in high school. Mm. I'll never forget that moment because she starts weeping. So my imagination goes to a place where, wow, she must be going through some difficult moment or season in her life. Mm. So I just basically try to move our conversation towards that, hey, are you okay? Are you going through something in your life? And she's just weeping. And then I said, are you okay? And she's like, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm crying because I've never seen an Asian speaker in my life. Wow. And this was not that long ago. Right. And it just got me, you know, and so I wept. Yeah. You know, obviously as a pastor, you and I and others, when we're speaking, we're stewarding God's word. So ultimately we're representing the gospel and Jesus, the kingdom. And we do that with humility and with fear and trembling and with great joy and privilege. But yes, there is a part of me that acknowledges the fact like 10, 15 years ago, there really weren't that many Asian American leaders. Mm. And whenever I spoke, I I had the sense of it wasn't so much pride, to be honest with you. It was more burden. I I felt this burden that I didn't want to mess it up. You know, I didn't want to screw it up for Asian Americans that might follow after me. I'm sure there were some unhealthy parts of that as well, you know, just to be distorting that kind of responsibility. But that's also real life. And I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, more and more of my Asian sisters and brothers 
are being being recognized for the gifts and passions and convictions that they bring to the table. So it's uh, but we still have a long way to go. I can't help but wonder, as I've heard, you know, the totality of your story in this podcast. You have this experience growing up where you are afraid to raise your hand and you have a stuttering problem and you're lonely. You're eating alone in the cafeteria and you know, you're this extreme introvert. You don't want eyes to be on you. You're afraid of speaking. You're afraid of people. And you know, fast forward 40 years, 50 years, right? Like fast forward and here you are as uh, one of the most prominent Asian American voices in the United States on this national stage, uh, running this global organization. I just can't help but wonder that juxtaposition of those two things, of the significance of your platform, and yet the, you know, if I may, the vulnerability of the person, the coupling of that, the juxtaposition of that, because your place on this national stage and atop this organization as an Asian American, I imagine is a pretty lonely place to be at times. But then at the same time, you're this extreme introvert who doesn't want the focus of people. And so like you're okay being quote unquote alone. Yeah, it's, um, you know, as you articulate that juxtaposition, it's stark. Couple thoughts that came to my mind is God's grace, mm. only God, you know. And I know maybe not every listener of your podcast might come from a faith perspective, but my response is only God can do what God has done in my life. Yeah. And for Minhi and I, we're not trying to sound ultra holier than thou, but we're just trying to live faithful lives. Yeah. That's it, you know. Last week, this is crazy. I met someone who is now going to Quest Church. And as I'm speaking with this person, this person has no idea, even after I've introduced myself, that I started Quest Church. <laughs> and it bothered me initially. And then I just realized, man, that's really, we don't care. Yeah. We just want to be faithful, do our part. At some point, our physical lives will come to an end. I've never, I think in my 30s, I was obsessed with legacy. Hmm. In my 40s, I realized we're all just going to die. And I just want to be as faithful as possible. Yeah. And that's basically, you know, what shapes this current chapter and what we think are upcoming chapters of our lives. All throughout Eugene's story is the question of identity. Who am I and where do I find my worth? From an immigrant child to church planter, to founder, to president and CEO, he continues to struggle with the question of his identity and it seems that that struggle keeps him grounded and rooted in Christ. If you're not following Eugene on Twitter, Instagram, or other social platforms, you really should. You can find him at Eugene Cho. And you should definitely pick up one or both of his acclaimed books, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk and Overrated. I'll put the link in the show notes. Now, one fun thing that's happened since we last launched an episode is that The Pursuit will now be a featured podcast at the Sola Network, which is a network that wants to influence emerging generations for Christ. To check out their articles and resources, please visit sola.network. And if you're listening right now and haven't yet left a review on iTunes or Spotify, would you do that now? Thank you. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. You know, when you introduce this 
uh, podcast as you normally do with your other podcasts. You can say Eugene Cho, <laughs> Pant Wetter. You know, I don't know, man. I'm just giving you ideas here. <laughs>